This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Synapse, Think Tank of the Air, featuring influencers, creatives, and top leaders in the Twin Cities. And now, here is our host, Steve LeBall. And welcome once again to Synapse Think Tank of the Air. We have a very special program today. We have a, uh, a very special brain to pick, so we're going to devote our entire hour to Joe Salvaggio, who's pretty famous in the Twin Cities nonprofit circles, and he's been called the, the foremost social entrepreneur in the Twin Cities. So we're going to talk to Joe. Joe, good morning. How are you doing? Good morning, Steve. Good. I'm doing fine. Hope the same with you. Well, doing very well, and... Well, I have to say I've known Joe for probably about 20 years or so, mm-hmm. uh, both as a friend and as a uh, and as a writer and editor and mm-hmm. uh, mostly volunteer, but some things. But uh, have you ever sat down and calculated how much money you've raised over all these mm. years in your various nonprofit efforts? Well, no, I have never done that, but I'm sure it's, uh, you know, tens of millions. I don't know exactly how many, uh, but, that, you know, I... I've gotten several $100,000 gifts and $500,000 gifts, so that that gets you, you know, into the close to the $10 million right away. So I'm sure there's two or three, at least, of those with Project for Pride and Living. And, and in a way, if you count the 1% Club, we we brought in uh, $100 million, uh, extra to the Twin Cities. It wasn't all for my organizations, but it was invested in other uh, nonprofits. So many millions, not for your pocket, but for the greater good. Right. So let's start with, I know way back when you were a priest. Right. So, you know, it's kind of hard to imagine you as a priest now, but (laughs) what were you thinking? Why did you become a priest? Well, it was a very different time. You know, I grew up with a very religious mother, uh, and uh, she was actually born in the U.S., but she had very Italian roots, and she used to say if... Kittens are born in the oven. They don't call them cookies. So she wanted to be known as Italian. <laughs> a nice little saying, isn't it? And my dad was 17. He wasn't as religious, but he came from Italy and good Catholic uh, background. But the men didn't go to church much in Italy. So <laughs> so you grew up in Chicago? I did, the west side of Chicago, on the Division Street where Studs Terkel interviewed everybody one time, 5443 Division Street. We lived above my dad's awning shop, and he came over when he was 17, worked on the railroad for a while, and then started an awning business in Chicago. And uh, we had an apartment up there. There were just two boys, and my mother and dad and an aunt lived there for many, many years. Well, now you're, what, 81? Yes, I am. 81 years old. So this was, you are growing up then in the, uh, what, late 40s, early 50s? Uh, I was born in 37, so I... Grew up, you know, grammar school in the 40s. I graduated high school in 55 and did three years at Marquette in Milwaukee uh, till uh, 58. And then I went into the Dominican Order for 
11 years. And, uh, wow, that's a long stint. Yeah. So now, so your mother was one of the reasons you wanted to become uh, a priest, but did you have some uh, sense of wanting to restore justice to society? Well, it wasn't so much that, but we had very respected priests in our parish. There were like six of them at a time, and they not only said Mass and baptized people and married people and presided at their funerals, but they coached us in basketball, football, and, you know, everything. So they were very good guys. And uh, and I still didn't think that much about it, uh, but, but in my third year of college, my dad got a stroke, and I was up in Milwaukee, and I had to drop out for a couple of weeks to go down to Chicago to run his awning business for him. And uh, during that time, I decided I really didn't want to be an awning man, you know, and take over the business. So I went to see this priest at uh, Fenwick High School, my old Dominican high school, and uh, asked him, you know, where I might go to for a monastery to think this through. And and he told me, well, there's a you know a retreat going on in a couple of weeks. Uh, you might want to go to that with people thinking about going in the order and becoming a priest, and so I went to that in this in the spring of uh, of that third year of college, and then I joined uh, in August fourth on St. Dominic's Day. So I made a pretty quick decision there. My dad got better, and I got you know I finished up my third year of college, and uh, and then I went uh, right into. I dropped out of ROTC. I was supposed to get a commission <laughs> to go in the army and go to summer camp, but they they let me out to go into to the priesthood. So I somewhere. guess that's another reason to become a priest. Yeah, I didn't really think of that, uh, but that was a nice benefit because I was not <laughs> enthralled with the Vietnam War. Uh, that's for sure, and that I probably would have had to go to Vietnam or something if I weren't in college, although we had college deferments, but I would have graduated, you know, in a year later, so I probably would have gone to Vietnam, which would not be my favorite thing, because I was an active protester against the war in Vietnam. So you're always kind of a radical, I mean, Vietnam didn't get going until the 60s, but you yeah. were kind of a, a revolutionary even in the 50s, huh? Well, a little bit. I was pretty much middle of the road, and, and in a way, I'm still kind of middle of the road. I don't. Uh, I'm not a far left or a far right kind of guy. I think there's some good things in conservative values and the old-fashioned things of making ends meet and living a. In, in we used to call it in medio stat virtus. In the middle is virtue, as a oh. Latin phrase. Uh, so I'm still kind of like that. I I'm, I lean to the left, but I'm I'm not a crazy left wing or hippie or anything like that. I never, you know, dropped out. You know, and smoked a lot of pot. I smoked a little bit of pot in the '60s, <laughs> but uh, not, not not a lot. So I'm a pretty uh-huh. average guy in a way. But I'm I'm strong in what I believe. And there was a, you know, Barry Goldwater was around too, and he would uh, say thing. You know, what was that saying about? Uh, Excess in the in the pursuit of virtue is no vice or something like that, mm. and uh, so I was I was passionate about my middle of the road, a kind of a radical centrist, I would say. Mm. Well, that's kind of Aristotelian too. Yes, it is very much yeah. the golden mean, even though exactly that's been distorted a little bit. So I, I I should say even in recent years, I've seen streaks of republicanism yeah. in you. So you're not a well, yeah, and what I like about it, my main mission has been with the poor, because I talked to Martin Luther King at one point, and I'll tell you about that later or something. 
but I don't believe the poor are powerless, so I want to hold their feet to the fire and not just get them trying to get all these entitlement stuff. I want them to work and empower themselves to, to do well. And, you know, Jesus said, I came to give life so that you have it more abundantly. But you don't have life more abundantly if you're just taking checks from the government or something. you, you got to work for it and uh, try and exceed and excel. Well, that's another part of Aristotle, to expand your potential. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah, as Jesus said, I came to make you uh, free and or live life more more abundantly or something like that. Hmm. You know, so I want you got to be living life abundantly, and to that, you, all your faculties have to be moving, and you got to be working. You can't be sitting at home on the couch taking a <laughs> you know a welfare check or something. So, sometimes my liberal friends think, "Oh, you're." You're uh, dissing the poor people or something, but I don't think so. I, you got to show you show them respect by showing, telling them they have some power and do as good as you can. Well, even in schools, I hear that teachers that excel with their students hold them to high expectations right. rather than thinking, "Well, you're from a poor family, right. you're a person of color, therefore I'm not expecting anything of exactly, you." Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. So, um, what did you do during your priesthood? We've never talked about that. So, 11 years, you, you well, wore the garments. In, yeah, I did. I started from the novitiate. If, any, if you get a chance to see the novitiate movie that's been out there, I had to go through that for a year. That was, very, that was about nuns, but we did a novitiate, too. And, the, and then you took uh, three years of simple vows and four years of solemn vows. And, it's like and being then, a doctor. You go through different stages. Oh, yeah. It's very much so. And, and I had some internships where they called you a young dad instead of a full father. You know, you were oh. you were, you were <laughs> ordained as a real priest, but you had that indelible mark on the soul, as they said. But you called the young dad so you would— uh, I went to Louisiana, Monet Ferry, Louisiana, a small town, you know, and it was in the 60s when, uh, uh, it was 65, I guess, uh, oh. when uh, Martin Luther King was strong and, and uh, you know, and I was preaching to, to a very white, uh, redneck kind of parish. You know? <laughs> I almost got myself killed there, and I would be bringing the black kids to the white only swimming holes and they had oh. they had drinking fountains for you know whites only and blacks only and uh, and so I would break those rules because we were kind of into it and you know that, those were the what's what you did in the 60s but uh, it was a little risky down there and I had an internship at a mental health institute a hospital in in Iowa and then another internship in Chicago uh, in the in the summer of uh, '65, too, that when Martin Luther King came up there too, and he, uh, so he was there, and it was kind of a funny time. He came up with all his guys in their bib overalls from the south, but the blacks up in the inner city of Chicago didn't particularly identify with that. So, <laughs> yeah, they. So, Nor did the whites, I presume. Yeah, that's right. It was very strange, but uh, I had a lot of respect for Martin Luther King and. So you met him and talked with him? Well, I talked to him on the phone. I never in person met him. I saw him in, in person, but too many people around. But I, the way we met on the phone is uh, my professor told me I had to sit by the phone all afternoon because uh, he wanted to set up this meeting between King and our master general. They call him a big shot head of the whole order, Dominican order, uh, who's from Spain. And he was coming to Chicago and Dubuque, Iowa, where I was. And so he wanted to set up a photo op between King and 
and our master general from Spain, and he said, you got to convince King that this is really in his self-interest, that he will get a lot of Catholics behind if he gets some big shot from Rome pictured in him, and they'll get in all the Catholic newspapers and that. So I sat there, and... Uh, and I'd be calling his office every hour. He was marching across, you know, like from Selma to different places. And <laughs> and, uh, and he, uh, sure enough, he called back, and uh, I heard that baritone voice on the phone, and it was really thrilling. Uh, and I was able to convince him to, uh, to meet with our master general for the photo op. And so that was good. And then I got kind of branded in the order, you know, that uh, one of the social justice priests uh, and they were there were just three of us that were really interested in the poverty problem, and uh, and that stuck to me to this day. I, I met Scott Dibble. You know who Scott Dibble no. is? He's a I think he's head of the house. It's at the uh, state legislature there, Democrat in uh, in our state legislature. But he met me, and I'd never met him. And he says, "Oh, you're the poverty guy." So, <laughs> so that's sort of what they labeled me back in the in the order back in the 60, 65, 66 uh, as the poverty guy because I talked to King, and I did ask for that assignment, and I got assigned here in Minneapolis uh, at. 24th Street and uh, 18th Avenue South, the Holy Rosary Parish. Mm. And I'm still trying to help them raise money. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, I'm trying to raise money for four different poverty groups. So that's sort of my niche. Wow. Both things. So so poverty and raising money, That you've had that from the get-go. Right. That's for sure. Hmm. Now, uh, when you became a priest, I mean, that's basically giving up ever having your own family. You right. Know, getting married and stuff. Uh, uh, how did you make that decision? Well, I, to tell you the truth, I wasn't that uh, you know excited about having a family. That we were so rigid in pushing into that. You know, everybody was expected to get married. You know, as soon as they got out of school, whether mm-hmm. it was right after high school or right after college, and have a bunch of babies, and and uh, that didn't appeal to me that much. You know, I, I wanted. Uh, I, didn't, I mean, I would miss the sex, not that I was sexually <laughs> active in those days. It was a mortal sin to do anything, even to masturbate, none of that. So I never did any of that till I was married Gosh. at 30, you know. And nobody, one of my friends, Terry Thompson, who you know, he said, nobody will believe you if you say that. <laughs> but that was the truth. I, I was, it was a mortal sin, you know, to do anything like that, and you'd burn in hell forever. So I believed that stuff, and I, so I wow. never... I didn't like giving up. I liked the girls a lot, so I never liked giving that up. But as far as being a family guy with a bunch of kids and doing like I saw the parents of my classmates and some of my classmates, I, I didn't uh, particularly want to do that. I, I I liked the priesthood work, you know, first of all. I liked the... You know, being respected in the community and being did you, did you, you wore all the gear, right? The collar. Yeah, and, yeah. You, you had kind of two outfits. One was the black collar, you know, and the, mm-hmm. the white collar with the black or a shirt and suit, black suit. And you'd go out, but when you were around the church, and the you know, you had a white robe, like most people are familiar with sure. the Franciscans with the brown robe, and uh, you know, and uh, but ours was was uh, white and it had a big hood on it so we were part monks and part uh, part activists we had a saying from contemplation comes from 
come contemplation comes action. So you had to mm. pray a lot like a monk, but we didn't just stay in a monastery. We uh, actively got out in the world and uh, tried to make the world a better place. Wow, took off the hood and put back on the collar and hit the streets. Right, yeah. And then my first assignment in Chicago there, that internship was really exciting to me because it was a black neighborhood and there were black teenage pregnant girls, and I'd say, are you going to give them up for adoption? And, oh, my God, they would just get madder in hell, you know. They Give up my baby for adoption? White people are crazy, you know. So, so you know, I was right into it uh, with uh, the collar and a different culture and all those things. And, and I'd say white things like, you got to have a sense of humor or something. They'd say, mm-hmm. sense of humor? You know what we're facing here? How can you say a sense of humor when we're oppressed and all this stuff? So I was, I really got through myself into it, and I loved it, you know. Huh. And I loved it at Holy Rosary. I had the boys club, you know, and then uh, I had the, you know, the boys and girls club, you know, teenagers, and I had the women's society, I had the men's society, and and I was and I was really involved against the war in Vietnam and in the civil rights movement, and so much to the extent that uh, my pastor wanted to get rid of me after the first year. He wanted <laughs> you were wanted, too radical. Yeah, he wanted to send me down to this uh, priest whose nickname was Crusher Conley. <laughs> Sounds like a wrestler. Yeah, well, he was gonna cry, and I knew that guy. He would knock knock us on the head, you know, and. Uh, when I was in high school, he was very tough and knock you right in the top of the oh, head there. She knock on the yeah, microphone. I yeah. guess he's a pretty brutal guy. Yeah, he was. But uh, fortunately, I, I got through that. Uh, the teenagers set up card tables outside of the entrances at church one Sunday and took signatures to keep me. And the, oh, uh, and the women's group came to my defense and the men's group, the Holy Name Society, came to my defense and... They had council members and, oh. you know, and uh, priests from the suburbs with money. Uh, so I, I went to Chicago then and argued my case. And, and my pastor had to admit that I, even though I was active in all these things, I didn't, I didn't neglect my priestly duties, so I got to stay. Well, it's like karma. You did spread so many good seeds, they came back and supported yeah, you. Yeah, they did support me. It was very, very a wonderful experience. Hmm. Well, so, so uh, in the midst of all these fighting all these causes, you became a cause yourself. I suppose you could look at it that way. Yeah, yeah you know, because they, they certainly came to my defense. And and the, the, the provincial, who was like the bishop, you know, for our order, Dominican order, he uh, he said, well, he's, he's really being authentic to his beliefs, and I admire him for that. And as long as he's not neglecting his priestly duties uh, and he's got all this support, he can stay. And my pastor just about dropped his teeth, you know. It was very uh, humiliating for him because he was an older guy that had a lot of respect in the order, but he kind of lost the battle there. Mm. We're talking here with Joe Salvaggio uh, uh, about his priestly period, which turns out to be an extended bachelorhood, although rather dry one sexually. Um, We'll be back in a moment listening to Synapse Think Tank of the Year. Synapse, Think Tank of the Air. We'll be back in a moment. And we're back with Joe Salvaggio, a a renowned 
uh, leader in the nonprofit world in the Twin Cities for the past, oh, I don't know, 40, 50 years since he's been around. He's now 81 and still working. You know, my wife gets mad at you because you work harder than I do. <laughs> it could be. I do like the work. You know, I have my fun, too, and my leisure time, too, so it's not, don't feel sorry for me. But you're never sitting around watching that TV very right, much. Right, except if I'm laughing with uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm or something at night. <laughs> so there's, there's a, you're a rounded person, kind of a centrist. Um, so now, why did you decide to take off this collar and uh, the white hood and, and become a civilian? Well, it was a wild year, as you may recall, 1968. I don't know how everybody admits that 68 was a very tough year. That's the 50th anniversary. Everyone's celebrating yeah, uh, yeah. all those things that, that happened. Yeah, yeah. Wild. Uh, I mean, our times this year are, are pretty wild under Trump and stuff. But back then, you know, we had Martin Luther King being assassinated and Bobby Kennedy being assassinated and, you know, Cambodian bombings. And uh, I don't know if Kent State was that year or something, but I, but a lot of, lot of turmoil there. And Nixon and the Democratic election there in Chicago where they're beating up on all the demonstrators. So it was kind of a, and Rosa Parks was a big hero too, and it was kind of a, you know, thing to do what Rosa Parks did, you know, to sit in the bus uh, in the front and just do it. And so I got thinking, well, do I really want to be a, a celibate all my life and be like some of these older priests? Some of them in the rec room were drinking themselves too much, you know, at, at night and going to bed with a couple of shots and staggering to their rooms, you know, and, and I thought, well, I don't know if I want to grow old like that, and I, and would be nice to, you know, I believed in a married priesthood, and I started to uh, not believe in all the doctrines of the church. Birth control was crazy to me, and Bishop Shannon was, uh, thought Vatican II was going to push for birth control, and, and even... Uh, <clears throat> You know, there was a guy named, uh, what was his name? Uh, uh, he was a Jesuit priest. Uh, he he taught the, the uh, Vatican II that, that, he, that he may be true that error has no rights. That's what the church used to always say. So if, they, if, if you're wrong on something like abortion or birth control, they don't have any rights, you know, to promote that. But he said... Uh, John Courtney Murray was his name as a priest, and he said, well, the heir may not have any rights, but the people that hold those may be an heir. They have rights, and we can't impose our Catholic teaching and dogma on them. So if they believe birth control or uh, abortion is right, uh, we've got to let them do it. And, and uh was around the time of Roe versus Wade, I think. Do you know when that was passed? It was around 70, maybe early 70s. Yeah, so we were permitted to vote for somebody that, you know, promoted uh, Roe versus Wade. A Catholic politician mm. was able to do that because if his conscience would do it, you know, would say okay. So I started thinking, you know, divorce and remarriage. I mean, God, there were wonderful divorced people that were remarried in the parish and the thought of them uh, never taking the sacrament didn't make any sense to me. So I, it was a very multifaceted thing, you know, that that hit me there. And in '68, you were kind of the spirit was to do what you believe your conscience is telling you to do. 
And I, you know, I I just ended up, well, I did have one interesting phone conversation, too. I I had met a a gal at a Catholic conference, you know, that that I hired to run the city youth center that that lasted for 40 years, too. It was on Lake Street there, and then they opened one on the north side. And uh, that was, she was running that, and I... I got kind of interested in in her, and I and so I called up my provincial, the same guy that got me into the order, the same guy that got me to stay. You know, won my case with. He was the judge and jury. You know, and uh, and he and I said, well, Father, you know, uh, last year we talked about my interest in the social doctrines of the church more than the sacramental doctrine of the church, and and I'm thinking. I, it's that may be true, you know. I, I really am more interested in the social change of the civil rights and the anti-Vietnam stuff. And and I even met this gal, and I'm thinking of, you know, it might be nice to be married. And, and he, he says, "Is she a nun?" And I said, "No, no, she's no nun." He says, "But he says, well, I think you should leave anyway if you if you know somebody, you know." You're interested in that way. Why don't you leave and why don't you leave tomorrow? And so, <laughs> get so, out of here. Yeah, so he, uh, he got me out of there. I left and with no money at all. You know, they we only got $15 a month as a because we had evolved poverty and they would supply us with a car and a you know, and you had a TV, so it wasn't a it was a good middle class life, but uh. You didn't have any spending money aside mm. from, you know, one movie a month or one dinner out a month or something like that. So I left, you know, and I just, uh, with no money at all, but uh, luckily the gal's brother uh, took me in, and so I didn't, you know, I could stay oh, with your him. your girlfriend's brother. Yeah, and, she, <laughs> and it hadn't quite, you know, I wouldn't quite say it was a girlfriend, but, you know, we were certainly interested in each other, and, and it did develop into that, and I actually ended up... And her and uh, and we, uh, she couldn't get pregnant right away, so we put in for the adoption agency, and and then we got she got pregnant, and uh, but the adoption agent liked us so much, she she <laughs> asked us to take these two boys that uh, were from Texas that were scheduled to come up here, but then the, the, at the last minute the. Uh, the other family backed out, so mm. so we had three kids right away: a two, a six, a seven-year-old that were borderline retarded, and then a, a one, you know, baby uh, born in October, and uh, I think that was seventy-one or something like that. Well, you went from zero to, to three. Yeah, right. Yeah. Gee. And, uh, yeah, and what kind of work did you find? Well, the first the first six months, I worked just. Uh, you know, in a poverty job with Cesar Chavez as an organizer, you know, but there he only got like five bucks a week too. So my my wife didn't particularly want to support me. So <laughs> so that only lasted six months. I didn't want to did go. Did you meet Chavez? Yeah, I did meet him. He came up here and I said, he asked me to say mass for him, even though I was a laicized <laughs> priest. Or I'm not sure I was quite laicized at that point, but I did go through the process. It took me a about a year to get laicized, you know, and be in good with the church again. And when did that more for my mother's sake, you know, than my own beliefs, you know. But uh, but I met Chavez. He was a very impressive guy, you know. He's very spiritual and very serious. 
And so I, I worked for him for six months organizing and going out and confronting people at grocery stores not to buy lettuce and not to buy grapes and stuff. <laughs> what that was, was a, that like? I mean, It was terrible. I, I'm, a ni- I'm a nice, mellow guy. I don't like to confront people. And don't eat their, those grapes. Yeah, at their favorite grocery store. They'd say, I like this grocery store. You're crazy. Get out of my way. You know. <laughs> so they... Uh, you know, protesting has never been my favorite thing, although I did, you know, do some serious protesting and got arrested and in Washington, D.C. and stuff like that. But uh, not a very confrontational kind of guy. I like to dialogue and work things out a little bit more. Right. You have tenacity, but yeah. to not eat grapes, that's a big thing to ask. Yeah, somebody. and to give up their favorite grocery store. You know, people are attached to going to Lund's or Super Value or Red Owl or whatever the hell it was, you know. <laughs> so I had to confront them and ask them to sacrifice for these migrant workers, you know, way out in California. And they didn't, that was too altruistic. I remember asking Saul Alinsky that question once, too. He, he was sort of bad-mouthing altruism and saying, uh, you know, self-interest is the thing we got to go on, people's self-interest. And I asked him, and I said, well, what about, you know, uh, this grape boycott? You know, that, you got to be pretty altruistic to give up grapes and give up your grocery store. He says, it'll never last. You know, it's it's not based on self-interest. And so he kind of poo-pooed our, our boycott. And, oh. I, and I think ultimately he was right. You got, you know, it, it was kind of, this was the height of the 60s when people really loved Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King. So altruism was, you know, in, in vogue. But uh, to really make a social change, it's got to appeal to your self-interest more. Right. I think Woody Allen said he gave up grapes for 24 hours as an <laughs> act of social conscience. Right, yeah. <laughs> so then, then uh, well, then it's good your wife didn't like that job. You didn't like it either. That's right, yeah. And so then I went uh, for, I didn't want to go to college because I had 11 years of college. Like, oh. So I, uh, and I'm not even a very good student, you know, and studying is not my thing. I'd rather be an activist. But so I took a job that was fairly lucrative, you know, uh, at IDS, Investors Diversified Services. It's now oh. American Express. They're the, <clears throat> they bought American Express, actually, but they... Uh, moved the headquarters out east, and in, in American Express had a higher-profile name, sort of like Wells Fargo. Mm. North, Northwest Bank bought Wells Fargo, but they kept the Wells Fargo name. Sure. So, and like, so, you were in the IDS building downtown? Uh, no, that was, I don't know. No? If that, I don't think that was built yet. Okay. I don't know when that was built. That was late 60s? Yeah, this I'm talking about the early 60s. Okay, or, so you... Uh, or, 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 no, I was late 60s, yeah. I left in... 68, so I must have been working there, 69, 70, 71, those three, or no, just, I just worked there for one year, and then I did the advocate services, so I, I worked there, but I I think, in, I don't remember if I, we had a sales office, on, you know, right downtown here mm-hmm. in uh, Marquette or something like that. So but, did you earn a lot of money? Well, it was, for the time, I didn't put a lot of time in on it either, Uh it was, and I only needed, my wife and I had an agreement, we'd each make $1,000 a month, you know, at least, to, to, to support ourselves. And uh, that was enough back then. So I had to sell, you know, I had to sell about a couple of things. We had to make 10 appointments a week and then sell just one or two to make, you know, your $1,000 a month at minimum. So I did that 
but during the course of that, I di- I discovered something really nice. You know, I <clears throat> I uh, was trying to sell one of my friends who knew of my social justice work and had worked with me and stuff. And he said, "How do you make your money?" And I said, "Well, if we if I get somebody to save a hundred dollars a month, uh, I get." Uh, you know, they we invested in stocks and some in bonds and some in insurance, and I get ten dollars of that hundred dollars a month. So if I get a hundred people, I get my thousand dollars a month. You know, and he said, "Well, why don't we just get a hundred of your friends to give you ten dollars a month, and that'll give you your thousand, and you can work in the area of race and peace and poverty. You could be an extension of them. They'd be buying stock in you rather than corporate America." And that would satisfy you. You'd do what you really love to do, and it would satisfy them because they're busy with their families and their jobs. They'd rather give you 10 bucks a month as an extension. So, so, so you became a commodity. Yeah, and I, we wrote, we co-signed a letter to 200 of our liberal social justice friends. Said if I, if you, if I get at least $1,000 a month pledged, I will quit my job at IDS and do this full time. And lo and behold, a hundred of them said yes. So, so <laughs> I made it. yeah, I did that for three years, you know. And during those three years, I was head of you know clergy and laity concerned, and I did the more of the great boycott, and, and then I did uh, I started Project for Pride and Living, you know, and and then uh, so during those three years that I did that, when Project for Pride and Living started taking off, that was another thing, you know. I ha- I had boycotted a, a Midwest federal savings and loan one time or threatened to boycott and Hale Greenwood was the guy uh, that <clears throat> was the chair of it and he kind of had a social justice concept but he was a Marine too and uh, so we had <laughs> two sides fighting, yeah, over, right. fighting over his soul right so he uh, we said if you don't give us equal money for the peace movement uh, as you put up for your marine billboards, we're gonna pick at your bank, you know. <laughs> and so, lo and behold, he gave us uh, five thousand dollars, and you know, gave us a, uh, you know, a good push for the peace movement stuff. But then I, once I got Project for Pride and Living going, we were just floundering around. But we got a boarded-up house, and we were fixing it up with black teenage girls, you know, who were more interested in their nails and their makeup than, the, <laughs> and we had them demolitioning these uh, houses. But I, we got a picture in the paper, and I sent that to Hal Greenwood, and I said, Hal, I know of your interest in, you know, race and poverty and uh, and housing because uh, he was doing mortgages. I said, is this something you'd like to support? And I thought he would hate me because we, you know, he, we had threatened to boycott him. But but then he he called us in. He said, "Well, I think you're sincere, and I, you know, I know that." So uh, he says, "I I'll not only give you five thousand dollars to bolster your program, but I, I'm pretty sure I can get my board to approve a million dollar loan fund." Holy cow! Yeah, and he, so we could use the money for more for interim construction company costs, and then that construction loan would get paid off when the people bought the house, you know, to, uh, you know, the mortgage would take out the construction loan. So that really catapulted us up, and that's when I dropped, I switched over from getting my $10 a month from people to getting a, a, a salary, but, but Jim Shannon and Russ Ewald, two great priests that were uh, in Bishop, were uh, 
They forced me to take twelve thousand a month. I was only going to take ten thousand a month. <laughs> they forced and, you. Yeah, they said no. You got to take it. Otherwise, it won't be a serious job for you. You got to get paid twelve thousand not twelve thousand a month, a year. No, twelve thousand a year. Oh, okay. Well, that's thousand, a thousand a month. Yeah, a thousand a month. So I kept. But I was willing to work for ten thousand a year, you know. But they made me take twelve thousand. <laughs> so I, I believed in my well, vow of poverty. Your wife was happy for that move. Yeah, well, yeah, and she was she was in part time in school too. She was getting a master's in in health, kind of public health and stuff. And we had a baby and three kids by then, so that all was working out. What what was the concept of uh, Project for Pride and Living? Because it's still going strong. Yeah, it's uh, it peaked at about forty two million a year, and it's, it grew from uh, I had it up to ten million a year, and ten million in net worth. But my successor Steve Kramer really got a lot of public money in there, went up to forty two million a year. It's a little less now, but it's going strong. Well, the the the, the basic concept is self help. We took that. Uh, give me a fish and I eat for a day, but teach me to fish and I eat for a lifetime model. And so it was, you know, and now they call it helping people help themselves. So it's always been, you know, my philosophy has always been, you don't just throw money at poor people. You got to have them helping themselves and we'll help you help yourself or teach you to fish. And uh, I still go there once a month and talk to the graduating classes that go into jobs at hospitals and banks and public service kind of things and and teach them uh, you know the, to, to work hard and uh, you know and I give them a little box that was a, it's a symbol of their soul or inside and I say fill this up with courage and focus and desire and ambition and drive and and you know hold your feet to the fire you're not powerless work hard and I, I love to do it, and they love to hear from the founder. So I'm still involved there. Still doing that, and that was founded what seventy three? Seventy two. Seventy two. Yeah, and it's it's really the basic blocking and tackling of life. You know, the jobs and housing and self sufficiency and that kind of pride in your your work. And 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 one you know a couple people over the years have said, don't change the name, Pride in Living. That's what gives me the thing. I'm proud of who I am, and I want to work hard. And, so uh, it's a, it was a good concept. It was built to last, as they say. Hmm. And so um, it's doing something that's very important today. I mean, one of the biggest problems in our economy is not enough workers. Right. Why not exactly. train the people that are here to do the job? There's, a, there's an interesting statistic that the head of PPL, Paul Williams, now who's half black and half white from two different parents there, and, but he says there's 125,000 uh, job openings for low-level jobs, you know, and there's exactly 125,000 poor people that could be trained for those jobs, you know. They're, they're, they're just they're underemployed and they're, they're unemployed, and they're, but they can work. They're not, you know, blind and crippled or something like that, but they can, they're, they're real people of potential. So our job is to, and not just PPLs, but Summit Academy, OIC, Twin City Rise, a lot of these nonprofits, uh, are meant to to match those 125 people, 125,000 people with the 125,000 jobs available. Hmm. They're needed. Talking with Joe Salvaggio, who's a serial entrepreneur in the nonprofit sector, and his first big one was Project for Pride and Living. We'll talk about more what came after that when we return here on Synapse Think Tank of the Air. Synapse. Think Tank of the Air. We'll be back in a moment. 
We're back. I'm Steve LeBeau. You're listening to Synapse Think Tank of the Air. And our special guest this hour is Joe Salvaggio. And uh, we're talking about his first nonprofit, Project for Pride and Living. And then what What? What came next? Did you have a, a, a – I know of the most recent ones, but what happened next as far as your nonprofit proliferation? Well, I, I retired at 60 years old, and I was tired. It was a stressful job running a nonprofit. You always have board pressures with people with egos and neighborhood people. that They want to run your show and – Donors want to tell you what to do, and the staff want to always have the idea. Sounds so terrible. That's all, yeah, that's, that's, you know, it's fun. You're, you're proud of what you're doing. You like to get psychic income by helping these people. But there is a downside, you know. There's a stress to it. I talked to all kinds of executive directors, and they, you talk to Chuck Denny or Joe Cavanaugh, you know, those guys, they, they say nonprofit boards are really tough. I never had that hard a job with my board because I had Jay Kudrowski there, who was a very strong guy. I only had three board chairs in the 20-year history, 25-year mm, history. That's pretty good. Yeah, and they were all three good guys that I got along with, and they were good business people, and they knew how to control people, and so the leadership was good at the board and the staff. But I did retire there, at, uh, and I kind of took it easy for the first couple of months. And But then this guy, Tom Lowe from Lyman Lumber, he came, gave me a book called uh, uh, Wealthy and Wise by Claude Rosenberg. He was a money manager out in the in San Francisco area. He was managing about $25 billion worth of goods, but he also had a nonprofit philanthropic side, and he's... So they published this wealthy and wise book for, for him, and and he came up with the idea that you know there's a lot of wealthy people around here. Gates at that time was worth a hundred billion dollars, you know, and he was probably taking a million dollars a year salary or something like that, you know, just and giving ten percent of that away, you know, hundred thousand or something. But so he said, well. They, people like that should look at their net worth as a separate pile of money, and they should give at least 1% of that every year. So if, if they did that, somebody like Gates, he'd be giving away a billion dollars a year instead mm-hmm. of 100000 you know, such a radical difference. So uh, so we, I asked Ken Dayton, uh, is that a reasonable way to look at it? He said, well, it's not exactly the way I do it. I have my own theory, but uh, it's reasonable. Yeah, 5% of income or, five, or 1% of net worth, whichever is greater, but give it to charities of your choice. Even like I'm passionate about the arts, and so I, if we start a group of us to, you know, kind of a club, don't uh, force them to just give to poverty if they want to give to the environment or the arts or, uh, you know, health field or education, that's fine. Just so it's charity, it's altruistic, 501c3s. So uh, he, I said, would you go public with, with that? He says, well, if you can get 10 of my friends or 10, <laughs> 10 peers to, to do that, I'll go public. And I got 30, you know. I, wow. they, they weren't all, you know, of his, he was worth a half a billion himself at that time. He could have been worth more if he weren't so charitable. But, uh, but I got 30, you know, millionaires, big names like, you know, Wynn Wallen and uh, and a Piper in there from Piper Jaffrey and people like, uh, I don't know if Bert Cohen was in the original group or Chuck Denny, people like that, Jim Campbell, you know, big big names. 
And uh, we got the front page story of this in the Star Tribune Sunday edition. It was right before Thanksgiving, so mm. it was a good philanthropic time. And uh, even had the headline story of the first edition of that uh, thing. So we were launched as a 1% club that people would pledge to give 1% of their net worth. So for every million dollars you had accumulated, you had to give away $10,000. Or <clears throat> for every 200000 you had to give away 5% or, or $10,000, whichever would be greater. And I remember talking to Rudy Boswich one time, you know, the old plywood Minnesota guy, you know. And, he and said, senator. Yeah, senator. Yeah, he was a good guy. He still is a good guy. I see him at the Minneapolis club every once in a while. He's in pretty good health for an old guy. He must be 85 at least, you know. And he's, But he's a good conservative guy, values, but a, he has a good conscience. And he is, thinks back to his Russian and Jew heritage and Jews tend to be pretty philanthropic too so he's a good guy but anyway he said it's not as you know uh, can I give the lesser of the two and and his friend uh, Bruce Thompson who was uh, he said no no you got to give the greater of the two and so he, he did sign and he, he became a member even though uh, you know 10% of his income was a lot less than 1% of his net worth hmm. so we've held people's feet to the fire and we got a thousand members, and we would track them every year. How much did you increase your giving, and was it because of the one percent club? And we we showed that we brought in a hundred million dollars more in those ten years. Boy, that's great. Yeah, it was great and new money. And uh, but then Ken Dayton died, and I and I was getting tired, so I hired this volunteer, tall, blonde, strong woman, uh, attractive, you know, thirty five years old or thirty three years old or something. But she went and got cancer, and she died. Gosh. Yeah, so it was bad news, and uh, and I was getting a little tired of it, twisting in people's arms to do that. I was like preaching, that, you know, and, and the times are sort of changing a little. Well, well plus, I was going to say, I mean, the 1% Club, that might have been a great name some years ago, but in yeah, recent years, exactly. it, means the, yeah. it means the people that are taking all the money. Right, and yeah, and unfortunately, that's the way we've gone today. You know, it's just... Uh, Especially with Donald Trump in there, he's, he's sort of blessed to make as much money as he can and cut tax cuts for the rich. The and, tax cut just accelerated oh, the division yeah, of uh, yeah. income and, and wealth. Yeah, it's just terrible. So it's needed more today than ever. And, uh, and poverty stuff is needed more. I just saw a wonderful article in today's Star Tribune about the social entrepreneurs. I don't know. Did you see that? The, Pillsbury House. Yeah, they're uh, Pillsbury uh, United. Well, United. well that, that, I, I like the idea of investing in businesses. That's kind yeah. of what they're doing. And that's what your most recent uh, nonprofit, Microgrants, is doing. You, right. you invest uh, in people of potential yeah. that can maybe uh, get a business going. Yeah. And we have 35 nonprofits like the Pillsbury uh, United or the and they and they do three things. They screen the people to make sure they're, you know, really ambitious and do what they say they're going to do. And then they coach them on how to use it. Uh, are they going to use it for advertising or a website or inventory or what? So this uh, is, a, we're talking about $1,000 yeah, that you give out as a grant, not as a loan. Right. But it's very, but we, we do check up on them too. We have those partner agencies call them back in six months to a year and say, 
did you do what you say you're going to do? Are you still employed? Are you still in business? Are you still making a profit and get the statistics? And they tend to be all people of color, you know, 95% and the inner city people. And so it's very good. And Well, you're kind of a, a divided man. You have friends in high places and friends in low places. Yeah, if you remember that book called In the Streets and in the Suites that I wrote most of, uh, I love that title because I have to spend time, you know, at the Minneapolis Club in the suites, so to speak, with the Daytons and big-name people, entrepreneurs and papers. And, but I also live in the inner city, and I work in the inner city in the streets, so to speak. So you got to bridge that gap between the rich and the poor. And, and some, some of my entrepreneurial... Uh, or nonprofit executives, not so much the ones that are entrepreneurs, but they, they get a little, you know, spoiled in the nonprofit sector too. And they say, oh, you're always sucking up the rich people, you know. And I say, well, if you're going to help the poor, you got to, you know, <laughs> relate to the rich. I, what the hell? You, just by definition, that's where you get the money. And <laughs> They've and got I'd, the money. Yeah, and I'd rather get it from rich Republican people and, you know, conscientious conservatives than some big corporation because they got to give away their five percent anyway and that's already been tax deducted and i and so that's my latest kick too is that you know kind of continue the spirit of the one percent club by getting it from individuals to, to directly spend down i know i've got one guy that's it's worth 50 to 60 million and he's considering he's given each kid five million dollars so he's Holy not co- oh uh, his children his own yeah and but he's uh, thinking of giving it all to a nonprofit, say say ten nonprofits, five million each. You know, if it's fifty million, and I said I love that idea. Mm-hmm. And skip the big foundations because they they're designed to be go into perpetuity, and they only spend one twentieth of the money they have. Is you that know? right? Sure, five percent is one twentieth, and you know whether you're the Minneapolis Foundation, a donor advised fund, or a, a private foundation, or a corporate foundation, they only spend five percent of their income mm-hmm. and I mean five percent of their net worth uh, their well, assets because people need it now can, exactly can you, can you give me some examples of the lives or businesses you've changed with just a thousand dollars for micro grants oh sure yeah well well one gal we, we gave and we can do multiple years multiple grants I love this one gal um, that started a laundromat on the north side by Broadway or Lowry and Penn you know, a great entrepreneur, and she's African American. She just got out of prison, and she, a prison, she guard said, "Well, I'll see you back in here again." And she, and she says, "Oh no, you won't." And the guard said, "Yeah, how are you going to do that?" You know, and he, he says, "Well, you'll see. I'll I'll come back and show you." And so she had this plan to start a laundromat. So we gave her a thousand startup money, and, and then she got associated with MEDA, one of our partner agencies, Metropolitan Economic Development Agency. They they counsel uh, entrepreneurs of color. Right, they do, and they do a great job at it. So they got her. They got in, in not just counseling, but they you know help you help them navigate the rough road. So they got her a government contract with the that. Uh, What's that government uh, with the, the Army place that's up Camp Ripley? Camp Ripley, yeah. Yeah. So she got a half-million-dollar contract with them to wash wow. their, their, uh, you know, their sleeping bags and sheets and towels and stuff like that. So she, and, and then 
So, but she was going up in the middle of the night every Wednesday night with a girlfriend and a couple of two, you know, two uh, SUVs, and putting the sleeping bags in there and bringing them back, and then bringing them back a week later and picking up the dirty ones. And but they had trouble up there with the forklifts, putting them into the car. You know, it just what they said. You got to get a seventeen-foot truck, mm. with, and else this is not going to work. So she comes to me again, and this was a year later, you know, and, and we were due to get another grant after a year. And, and I said, well, we're still only giving out $1,000 grants. You know, if you could find, she found a truck for $7,000. And she, I said, if you can find the other six, we'll be glad to give you another $1,000 grant. So she, she got 2000 from her boyfriend and 2000 from her long-term savings, you know, her IRA or something. And then two thousand from the business, and so she bought a seven thousand dollar truck, and it's in good shape, and it, it really worked out fine. So she was, uh, you know, going up there and getting. Like, she was able to save her half a million dollar contract. And then the next year, you know, on the north side, a lot of those poor black single parent mothers, you know, don't have jobs or don't have a car or something like that. So, but they would need their laundry done, so they did. Take a damn cab, you know. I've never been able to afford a cab, you know, around town. But and so she knew they couldn't afford cabs. But she had a girlfriend that was was like the original Uber concept, you know. Oh. She, so uh, she talked to her insurance company, and she says, "Can I, you know, is there anything wrong with me picking up my girlfriends, you know, to bring them to the laundromat, you know?" And and they said for an extra thousand dollars, they gave her insurance to do that. And oh. So we gave her a third grant of a thousand dollars, and she's it's, it's called all washed up too. It's a wonderful uh, <laughs> well, name for an entrepreneur, you know. But there's guys like that or gals like that. There's so she, sh- she didn't go back to prison. No, she sure did not. She has a great success story to tell, and and a guy with these XL shoes, it's extra large shoes, you know, his. His shoe size was the same as his age all the time until he got up to about age 18 or something like uh-huh. that, size 18 shoe if they make them that big. But he, he just hit a million dollars this year, you know, and it's really? in sales. And, uh, so he sells extra large yeah, shoes. Yeah, and he got some kind of arrangement with Florsheim and stuff like that. So Boy. there's great success stories, you know. And we I, should, give out, I should get that name. I need to. Yeah, uh, you have big feet yeah, too. Big yeah, big feet. Yeah. Yeah, well, this uh, we give away, you know, about three quarters of a million dollars a year, and we we're close to raising a million dollars a year, and we we have a little bit of overhead and try to keep it as low as possible. We well, have four part-time people working for us now. That's that's good because, you know, a thousand dollars to a lot of people, a thousand dollars is nothing. You know, they'll yeah, spend much more than that exactly, on a vacation. Exactly. But you've found people that it makes a huge change exactly, in their life. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and in 40 years ago, I'll tell you the story of our new executive director, who you should have on sometime, Don Samuels. He he came over from Jamaica as a young man, you know, probably 18, 20 years old, and he got accepted as a student, And uh, but he, he couldn't get in. He didn't have the tuition to go to this really good design school in New York, and he, he didn't want to go to the public design school. And but he met a guy in the elevator. He was working for cash, running an elevator up and down in some warehouse or some building. There had some housing in there. He told the guy a story, and the guy would keep checking in on him. Mr. Caliber is his name. He Don never met him, but 
But this guy in the elevator said, well, I, I announced your dilemma that you need $1,000 a semester or something like that. Uh, back in those days, you could go to college for $1,000 right. a semester. He says, if you pay him back, you know, by the end of the year, then he'll give you the next couple thousand for uh, for the next second year. And then this repeat the process till you get to all through all four years of college. And lo and behold, Dan did it. He worked three jobs in the summer and one job when he was in school. And he, you know, he's had a wonderful career, 30 years as a toy designer, and then 10 years as a, a city council member. He, he actually got ordained a Lutheran minister, hmm. uh, but he, they told him the black preachers up on the north side said, don't do that. We, we got enough black preachers here. We become a city council member. He got elected and was there for 10 years. Now he's on the school board and running microgrants. You know, married to a wonderful entrepreneur who said, you said it's going to be on the program. And, um, you know, these are tremendous success. Just think of the, the dollars, or not so much the dollars, but the, the community benefit that a guy like that did from a little micro loan. You know, it wasn't even a micro grant. You know? make, a, make a big difference. Oh, yeah. Now, uh, I bet, well, two things. One, I bet you're relieved to find somebody that competent to take right. over the role yeah. that you've served at Microgrants. Also, you're still out raising money, right? Yeah, I sure am. And I'm, I'm chair of the board and I'm chair of the development committee. So we have all the rainmakers on the board. I've got a big guy that was the CEO of uh, Best Buy on the board and a big venture capitalist that's got a lot of money, another stockbroker on there. So I'm motivating all of them to be rainmakers too. And we, we we're organized now that we're, we've got lists of 300 and some people that, you know, and about, you know, at least 100 of them give 5,000 or more a year, you know. And, well, uh, when when you go over to the Minneapolis Club, do people grab their wallets to make sure you're not <laughs> Yeah, sometimes they cross the street when they see me. But, <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, and, and every, every once in a while you get somebody that'll uh, say, get off my back or something rude, you know. And so you, got, you have to have a little bit of thin skin and you, you can't be hurt by it all the time. It's not a, it's like being a pushy salesman sometime too, but, <laughs> but I'm not, I'm glad I'm not selling mutual funds, you know, I'm selling the, human beings that have potential to really uh, help the community, to help themselves and help the community. Well, I know in terms of uh, good karma, you've earned quite a bit, but uh, are you going to heaven, do you think? <laughs> I don't talk much about heaven anymore, honestly. <laughs> I, uh, That's your well, old job. Yeah, but uh, I could, can I do I have time for my one good joke about heaven there? If it's quick. It's real quick. The guy, the rich guy went to heaven and, and St. Peter said, what did you do good to get in here? And he said, well, I gave $5 to the United Way uh, last year. And he says, well, what else did you do good? He says, well, about 10 years ago, I gave $5 to the Salvation Army. And St. Peter went over to Jesus and said, what should we do? This guy gave, you know, 10 bucks to these things. And, and Jesus scratched his beard and he says, well, let's give him his 10 bucks back and tell him to go to hell. <laughs> so not, not to... Uh, <laughs> So, 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 I, you so know, cough it up. That's cough the, it up uh, that, is the, the message. Yeah, yeah, you got to do that. Okay, well, that's a lesson. Uh, this is a very educational program here on Synapse Today. Thank you very much, Joe Salvaggio, for joining us. And, and uh, uh, Dan Colhane is our engineer of the day, so we appreciate that. And this is a co-production with WCCO Radio. We'll, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Synapse. Think Tank of the Error. I'm Leo Espinosa.
This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.